I'm Rod Rorick. I'm a board-certified plastic surgeon from Dallas, Texas. Welcome to Rorick Knows Podcast. The goal of this podcast and YouTube is to help you become a better you, a more educated you, a smarter consumer. We're going to be talking about not only plastic surgery and medicine, but so many other things that will help you and educate you to be not only an informed consumer, but to find the right physician, the right healthcare facility for you and your healthcare. So today we're going to start by talking about breast implants and breast augmentation. It's one of the most common topics in cosmetic surgery that we talk about today, and it's also some of the most controversial. So what you'll find is that we'll always have a world expert. And today we have the world expert on breast implants and breast augmentation, Dr. Bill Adams. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Rod. Bill, Great being here. Oh, and Bill is the founder of the Plastic Surgery Channel. In fact, we're recording it here at the Plastic Surgery Channel, which is a very innovative concept that talks about plastic surgery and the, and the hot topics in, in all of plastic surgery and beyond, and gives you the truth about what's really going on. So, so Bill, not only is a board-certified plastic surgeon, he's a past president of the Aesthetic Society, which is the largest society of board-certified plastic surgeons dedicated solely to aesthetic surgery. And, and as I mentioned, he's a co-founder. He's a founder of the Aesthetic Surgery, uh, uh, not only of the, of the Plastic Surgery Channel, and he's not only a phenomenal surgeon, but He's an educator, and I like that. I like people that give back, and Bill gives back. So, so Bill, we're going to talk about breast augmentation and breast implants. So you ready for the top 10 questions? Absolutely. And yeah. I'll just say, Rod, I think this concept for your podcast is, is fantastic because, as you know, there is so much misinformation out there. It's much different than it was 20 years ago, right? Because right. there's so much out there, so much misinformation. So you've got access to the world's experts, and you've been – all over the world, right? Yep. You've done all things. You've been better to the biggest journal in plastic surgery. You've been uh, past president of the ASP, ASPS. So you've done a lot of things. So you know all the experts. And right. so people are starving for the right information right. because there's so much misinformation. This is a great topic because there's tons of misinformation about breast right. implants and breast augmentation. So let's get into let's it. Let's get to it. Yeah. And, and I just want to play off that bill. You're right. And that's one of the reasons actually why we're doing this because. I see so many people on Instagram and TikTok and that they don't even come close to being experts in, in their field and they're talking about stuff that really is not necessarily right. So that's why I actually got involved in social media. And so we're gonna give you the truth about what's what's happening now from real plastic surgeons about real surgery. So let's talk about breast breast implant. Top problems. ten. A top ten. So so patients come to you and, and so what they say First of all, they, they want to have, they've researched you and they want to talk about breast implants and breast augmentation. So, so they say, am I a candidate? Am I a candidate for a breast augmentation? Well, you prob probably could be, but, you know, first of all, there's a lot that goes into it. And it's not like buying a pair of shoes. Sometimes patients think that. Are they doing it for the right reasons? Most of the people we see are doing it for great reasons. You know, they're doing it for reasons like they want to fit better in their clothes or say they had three children and their breasts changed. They just want to kind of get back to where they were before right. they had kids. And those are great reasons to do it. Now, obviously, what are bad reasons? You know, to get a better boyfriend, something like that, that's, that's rare, but that's not a good reason to necessarily uh, consider doing breast implants. But I think the vast majority of people, I mean, 90, I'd say 99% of the patients I see are doing it for their own personal reasons. They're not doing it for anybody else. And and those are the people that do fantastic. Right. No, I agree. That does bring up, you know, we live in Dallas, Texas, and sometimes I've seen, you know, 
mothers bring in their daughters and they're not even 18. They said, well, my breast, my, my daughter wants a breast augmentation. So that's not, that's a no go. So should they have their kids first or what, what do you think, Bill? You know, it, it, it depends. Obviously if they're, if they're actively trying to get pregnant and they're like, I'm going to get pregnant in the right. next six months or a year, I usually counsel them. Yeah. You should just, just wait till after you're done having kids. Now there's some people who say, yeah, I'd like to have kids, but I'm, you know, I'm 23 years old. I'm not married. I'm no plans in the immediate future and I want to do this for myself and that's I think it's fine to go ahead and do it at that point (laughs) we have a lot of patients that have children after having implants so it's in they can breastfeed they do they there's no restrictions on them it's just like they didn't have an implant right so it's a yeah and that's another myth about breastfeeding of course they can breastfeed after implants, saline or silicone. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but so, okay, so they, uh, what about, okay, what's the youngest age you, should you consider for cosmetic breast augmentation and versus the other? Yeah, it, it's interesting because the, so saline breast implants are approved for 18 and up. And, is there any science and, for doing that other no, than the silicone, FDA? Well, sil- silicone is 22 and up. And actually, I know I was a medical director of one of the clinical trials. There's no, the data actually was better for silicone in, in the younger patient population, but it's more of a political decision, right. which is actually, I think, demeans women a little bit because it's, it kind of says if you're, if you're 20 years old, you're not mature enough to make an de- informed decision about having what type of implant, which is ridiculous. Right. I meet some uh, women that are... 17, 18 years old that are way more mature than 40 olds, I mean. Oh, yeah. so, Same here. So it, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult decision sometimes because there are patients, and you know, we'll see even younger patients that have, it's not for cosmetic reasons, say they have Poland syndrome right. or they have some congenital breast abnormality. And they're candidates for silicone gel. You know, yes, like if they, they have are. significant asymmetries, right? Yeah. And sometimes the silicone implants are actually superior because of women that don't have a lot of soft tissue and things over time. So it's not a clear cut decision, but again, that's why you need to go to somebody that's not only a a board certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon, but somebody that actually is an an expert in doing breast implant based surgery because not everybody does it every day and that's what you want. Right. And I think that's very important. We're always going to talk about, you know, finding an expert, finding the best you can find for your needs, whether it's a breast augmentation or rhinoplasty, because if it's something that you do once or twice a year, that's probably not a not a good thing to do. Just because, you know, I'm a hand sur- I'm a ham surgeon, but you know, if I'm just doing hand surgery, you know, I probably wouldn't be doing breast surgery. I mean, I only do the things I'm really good at and I'm an expert at. So that brings up a good point. So so what about this whole issue? Are they safe? You know, the mother comes in with her 19-year-old. Is it a, Are these safe operations, Dr. Adams? Uh, absolutely. The operations are, are very safe. And there's been a lot of advancement of right. the the surgical aspect of breast augmentation in terms of recovery and things like that. I mean, patients have have really fast track, easy recoveries from these procedures. And now then we get in the safety of the devices and the implants. And there's been a ton of science, as you know, Rod, over right. the years about the safety of, of breast implants. Now, especially with social media, there's been so much noise with this and it's still, it's still, you know, a debated topic, you know, it has been debated for as long right. as I can remember my career of plastic surgery, right. but you have to look at the science. It's, pro- it's, it's probably beyond the scope of, of this discussion, but we'll talk in terms about of the science that, that we all know and, and would quote and think is the best science, yes, the implants are safe. Yeah, they're safe. And really, it's actually silicone is the most studied Im- implant and device in all of medicine. 
And there's a lot of things in medicine that aren't so studied that are used a lot in orthopedic surgery, ophthalmology, and other areas. So it is very studied. The science is good. It's a myth over the reality. So, okay, so what, tell us about the different types of implants. I mean, in brief, you know, when you're talking to your patients, they say, okay, I heard about saline and I heard about silicone. I heard that saline may be safer or lasts longer. What are, what are the, like, the five key facts that you tell your patients? You know, the, the, you say you have silicone and saline implants. They're both, they're both FDA approved. Right. And, and actually, you can, do, you can do well with either implant. Now, some patients may, for various reasons, choose uh, certain types of implants. If you look around the world, Silicone implants are by far the most commonly used implants. Right. We in the United States had an experience with saline, so there are saline implants that are used in the United States, but across the world, really, that's not the case. People don't use saline. Um, that being said, like I say, you can get uh, uh, you get a very nice long-term result with a properly done uh, saline brush implant. I think it's the feel of the breast. Sometimes people feel that silicone implants feel a little bit more natural, like. Um, a typical breast. It also has probably a little less changes over time than a saline implant. But, but even within those categories, especially with silicone, there's a lot of different types of silicone implants, a lot of different, they're shaped or anatomic shaped implants. There's round implants. Typically, round implants suit most patients very well. Um, there's that, other types of surface texture. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's hundreds right. of choices. And again, that's why you need to go to somebody that can not only educate you about all these different choices, but then help you choose what's going to be the best thing for you. Right. So let's hone down a little bit on that. So how long do implants last? You know, we hear 10, 15 years. I mean, what's the real story? Which also then follows up. When do you replace them? Or what? what's the right time? So there's been six generations of, of implants since 1962 wow. when silicone breast implants were first started by Cronin Giroux in, in Houston, Texas. Right. Again, another, another Texas. Another Texas innovation. Yep. And so there's six generations. The implants that were called the second generation implants, those were very thin-walled, thin-gelled implants. And so those only lack, really like pretty much all were leaking or ruptured by 10 years. And that's where this mantra that implants should be replaced every 10 years right. come from. So that's from the 80s and early 90s. Now we're at generation six implants. They're very different devices. The data on those implants is now, and I'm following a lot of these patients now. Re th these were reapproved right. in 2006. So we've, we've got patients that are about 16 years out, years out with them longer because of studies. But at 20 years, 80 plus percent of those implants are still fine. Right. So what we do, I tell patients, you, do, you don't need to replace them at any specific time point. We follow you. Every five years, we'll do an ultrasound. That's been a, that's been a great advancement right. for patients. The original recommendation was MRI. No patients no. did that, and that was, uh, was really a problem. And the FDA finally, in the last advisory committee meeting, agreed that MRI was probably not the best choice. And actually, it's probably not that even as accurate. And just ultrasound is a, a great modality to look at the right. implant. We're not looking at breast cancer and things like that. We're looking at the shell of the implant. And you can tell very quickly if the implant's intact or not. So right. we have our patients come in every five years. Right. It, it's a great way yeah. to do it. And I, I like that because basically what it is, it's, it's a non, uh, there's no radiation. It's high resolution. It's very safe and very accurate. These higher resolution ultrasounds and I think that's that's smart so 
nothing lasts forever. You know, death and taxes, but nothing lasts forever. And implants last a longer time than we've thought in the past. And and in, and of course, with saline implants, uh, you know, obviously if they deflate, and you'll know, you're, yeah. you know, my patient will call me that morning. You know, and but uh, and they're both safe. I think we should all, you know, they're both safe. They're both FDA approved. But it's really up to. You know the discussion you have with your with your surgeon now today, Bill. You know you know round, smooth implants, and and of course we've really gone away from any textured implants to smooth implants. Just tell us a little briefly about that discussion you have with patients and why. You know, in the United States, smooth implants have have always been the lion's share of, of the type surface texture of implants. A textured implant looks like a rougher surface on the surface of the implant. It's funny, and you know this, Rod. If you go internationally. No, That's I know. all they use is textured implants. Even through the breast implant ALCL uh, saga, it still is something that is is holds true. They use different types of textured implants, but they believe texture is is important for certain reasons. I'm not sure that those reasons, it's usually that they cause less capture contracture. I think that's probably been disproven now with the data. Um, but there still are textured implants, but I think in the United States, most most surgeons and most patients are really using smooth implants. Right. No, I agree. And Bill touches on obviously a sensitive situation, and you're, I'm going to ask you to explain ALCL and why that's important. But basically, in the US, we use smooth round implants, generation six, because they're safe. They're very scientifically proven to do work well. But, you know, what is ALCL? I know it's a rare disorder, but it's a real disorder. And, and of course, that's why in the U.S., obviously, we're very litigatious prone. So we want to make sure we do the right thing for our patients. Yeah, I think that the, the key points of uh, brush implant-associated ALCL, ALCL is a, is a rare lymphoma that's been associated with certain types of breast implants. And, and the important thing is that when it first, it's something that we really didn't know anything about until about 10, 12 years ago right. when there right. start some of the cases and actually Gary Brody kind of brought this to attention. And initially it was that felt like it was caused by one specific type of implant, which is really, we found that's not initially the case. It's actually been seen in every textured implant, but at diff varying degrees of incidence. Right. So the more texture, the more rough the surface area of the implant, the, more, the higher number of cases. And subsequently, as you know, those higher macro texture implants were removed from the market worldwide, so they're just not even available anymore. And again, in those, it was a real disease. Um, you know, there were some patients that, that died, although it's a very treatable disease. So the vast majority of pa patients, actually every patient that I know of that had been diagnosed with ALCL, that had been treated appropriately has been cured from it. Right. And, it, and so that's, that's good. But, there are uh, the other types of textures are still around, and that you can still use them safely. Right. But the incidence is very low, so we're talking like maybe one in eighty thousand. Um, but the the important other important point is that in smooth implants, there's never been a pure smooth only case of ALCL. Right. Do you hear that? Never been. And I, I agree. I'm not in, you know, knowing the literature and being passed out of the journal. And, and that brings up the next point. Okay, you know, people have talked about, and of course, this comes from the 90s, you know, uh, do they cause breast cancer or, or do they disguise breast cancer? And, and the answer to that is resoundingly no. Yeah. yeah. And in, in fact, it's curious, but the incidence of breast cancer in patients with implants uh, is lower than the general population. And nobody really exactly knows, knows why that is, if there's some um, protective effect. It is true that with an implant, sometimes patients can feel things more readily. Um, I think the other thing that comes up is mammograms. 
it used to be early on, you know, when 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 you were my residency director and chairman, Rod, I remember we the studies <laughs> yeah. were saying, you know, the the mammograms, you know, there is some issue with mammograms and implants, right. but that's really not the case anymore because I think most of the centers have have mastered the technique of, of mammograms with implants. And the other thing is that if there ever is any issue with them seeing something, they can do MRI as it'll back right. up to it. So yeah, and FG, you know, I actually tell all my patients if they're getting a, a mammogram, I always tell them to get a high resolution ultrasound because that actually helps them with high density breast tissue. So that's a little a quick quote pro on uh, just being safe. And so, so that brings up, so do you get mammograms on everybody pre-op if they're under age 40, unless they have disease or uh, history? We, we really, we, we followed the American Cancer Society guidelines. Actually, actually just changed. They just changed it to 45. It used to be 40 when right. we now it's 45. Um, but we I, do, I, what we do is if somebody has any family history of breast cancer, we, we do right. get a mammogram, we ask them to get a mammogram. And then we've always said, so when the recommendation was 40, we typically would tell people that are 35 that they might consider getting a mammogram just to get a baseline mammogram right. because they would get one when they're 40. And now we're probably going to say at 40 to do that. So Yeah, no, I agree. I, you know, safe is better. If they have any history on either side of their family, um, BRCA gene, I, we get baseline mammogram and ultrasounds, and then at 40 or above, you get them. And there's nothing. So tell me about fees. That's always a hot topic on Instagram. And, you know, people go and they call half the time, you know, when we get phone calls, it's the tire kickers, you know, that they're asking about fees. So, you know, the thing is, you know, the cost is very important, but so is your risk and your result. So, and they vary around the country. So, Bill, how do you how do you handle that when they say, well, you know, Dr. Adams, I, I'd love to have you do my surgery, but you know, you're just too expensive for me. Yeah, well, and I so, get that every day too, you know. Yeah, and I, I think that it's the old adage that you know, just because something you know costs less, um, sometimes the effects of that may be worse. And you can kind of get what you pay for. And, right. Walmart versus Neiman Marcus. Yeah, that, you and know. you know, it's it's. Um, so yeah, there's a big variation, but I would, I, in general, if something's really low cost, I think you got to be really wondering, you know, what's going on. And it's not just, you know, the surgeon is one thing, but also what other things, centers, the operating, where's it being performed? What are the facilities like? Right. It's just, you know, you're. This is a, it's this is a luxury procedure. You you want to do it safely. You want to get the best result. And sometimes, you know. If you run, go down that why in the path when you're going bargain basement, you get some problems. The rest of your life, you may be paying the price for right. that. Whereas, so it's kind of it's a it's a premium procedure, and and cost should be the least part of your decision right. making. It's, it's it's an investment in you. It's an investment in yourself, in your body, in your face, or your nose. And I think that's why I always tell them because. You know, it's not just a one-shot deal. I mean, I follow my patients forever. I don't charge them for follow-ups. I want to see them. Right. So I think what you mentioned, Bill, is very important. Board-certified plastic surgeon, an expert in what they do. The use of anesthesiologists. I prefer anesthesiologists or, or CRNA, an accredited outpatient surgery facility. In fact, if you're a member of our society, of the American Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons or the ASPS, you know, you have to have an operate in an accredited facility. You have to have a backup where you can go to a hospital. And all of these things that are very important because it's all about safety and outcome. It's not just saying I want bigger breasts. 
I mean, I want to live to enjoy them. So, I mean, that's that's the take-home message here. And yeah, you can go to North Dallas or Oklahoma or someplace and find somebody who's who's not even a surgeon to do them in their office, you know, in a broom closet or something. But I can tell you, we've seen those people in the ER at midnight, and you know, they aren't doing well. And plus, nobody will see you. Yeah, it. it, it I always find it intriguing that people will go to these like you say rod these are people that aren't they aren't surgeons they're not actually they didn't do any surgical training they may be an er doctor or they may be internal medicine doctor and they may be very nice people but they're not surgeons you know it's like you get on an airplane and you got a guy you think american airlines is going to hire like a drone pilot that can fly a drone really well but he's never flown a plane to fly the 747 no way. No you way. Know, it's just, it's just and, it, and that, I don't actually understand why uh, state medical boards don't take a harder uh, take on this because that is a big problem in aesthetic surgery. And again, you know, I just was president of the American Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery last year, and, you know, we uh, support aesthetic surgeons and we have the biggest international right. group of you know, aesthetic surgery experts, as you know, in, in the world, but it's, not apples to apples. There's people out there that have no training. They market well. They get on social media. They have cool-looking websites. And patients really need to do their homework because it's just not its not safe. Right. No, I agree. And I think, you know, it's safety outcome. And all of that hones down into one thing, finding the best surgeon that's an expert in what you do. That doesn't mean you're going to get a perfect result, but it means you're going to be have a safe and good outcome in a high, high majority right. of patients. So, so okay, the patient decides to have the breast augmentation. They come in, they do it in your boards, your outpatient surgery center, come in, go home. Tell us a little bit about that, and then also their recovery and post-op. Tell us yeah. about that. Well, we, we really emphasize what we call the process of breast augmentation, and that's... Um, that's actually something I published in PRS, Rod, right. like uh, 16, 17 years ago. But there's it's not just long? it's not wow. yeah it's <laughs> not just placing it's not just placing an implant in the pocket. I think that's what people think of say breast augmentation. It's just putting surgically putting an implant in the pocket. Well, that's one part, but there's many other parts. So you know, patient education is the first part, and then picking the implant properly. We pick an implant that fits the breast, and then doing the surgery. We we do the surgery very different than we did it 25 years ago. Right. We do it very precisely under direct vision, minimal trauma, and then the post-op recovery phase, patients know exactly what to do. We give them very specific instructions because the more patients know, the better they do and the less surprises they have, the better they do. But So the, the experience of the patient now is, is far different than it was 20 or 25 years ago. Yeah. That's when people were in bed for a week or two and they couldn't do anything. <laughs> now people are out shopping the day of surgery. They're having, they don't have to take any narcotics. They have a fast track 24 hour recovery and it's just a fun, easy experience. Right. And I, I've had uh, two patients in the past two years that told me that they wanted to, they wish they could do the procedure again because it was such a fun experience. I'm not joking about that. <laughs> and it was like, they can't do it because they already had the surgery, but it's just, it's incredible. Um, how well these patients do using this kind of right. high-level techniques. You're absolutely right. And, and Bill is very humble because he and the late John Tebbets really revolutionized how we do breast augmentation. You know, it's a very sequential 
rapid recovery, no touch technique, uh, and the minimal use of opioids. I mean, it's unbelievable, and it really works. They're out and about. It's just it makes it so seemingly almost stress-free. No, none of my rhinoplasty patients ever say they want to do it again. They like the result, but <laughs> they usually don't say, "I don't want to. I don't do that again," because they don't like it when you know lady pulls out those splints. So yeah. So. That's awesome. So, Bill, you bring up a great point about people not reading instructions. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's millennials, but I will tell you, they don't read them. And, and, you know, I give it to them three times. You know, they get it in their informed consent. They get it in the day of surgery again. But I give them my cell number. So then I just always, when they call me and they said I was on Google, I said, Dr. Google's is not a doctor. He's wrong 80% of the time. And call me, you know, stay off Google. And I think that's just so worthwhile. And that's why I just let them call me. He's the drone pilot. The drone Google. Right. <laughs> yeah, the drone pilot. Or I was on Instagram and go, oh my goodness, you know, yeah. seeing these people aren't even plastic surgeons talking about breast implants. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you experience the same thing, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. It's a problem. It's a problem. So, you know, just know before you go and, you know, make sure you can talk to your surgeon post-op. I can't believe sometimes people say, oh, I, I only get to talk to, you know, you know, the PA or something. I mean, you know, talk to your surgeon. If they don't want to talk to you, you probably don't want them as your surgeon. Bill, let's summarize, you know, in the last few minutes about know before you go what they need to look for, like the five key points from a board-certified plastic surgeon and beyond. What 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 should they look for in these last few minutes? Yeah, I think really making sure you do your homework, you know, you got it starts with doing your homework, doing the research, you know, picking and you, you know, you know, maybe don't pick one person, pick a few people. Right. Uh, there's there's a lot of good people around, but you know, do your research, pick a proper surgeon, somebody that's an expert in in this procedure. And then you know, you want to connect with your surgeon. That's true of any plastic procedure, including this, this. But you need to kind of go through the process of learning about it, being educated. Um, I think one thing we haven't talked about, I, I mentioned briefly, you know, we pick implants that fit people's breasts. Right. That's, that's really important. I think sometimes patients, again, social media, access to information, they talk, they go, come in for the consult, they, they make a great choice, and then they talk to their friends, and their friends say, well, oh, you should go with a bigger implant. And so, and, and in some cases, it's, it's fine to do that. You can still do that within reason. But if you make it all about volume, it's not going to give you your best right. result. And in fact, what we see, we see patients coming to us for revisions because their implant was too big, and they, right. they say, it makes me look fat or big. And, that, and so you got to be careful of that. So I think that's a, another important tenet. And then, you know, you just want to follow whoever you go to. It's not, no, everybody doesn't do things the exact same way, but follow the instructions that your, your surgeon wants you to do because. Wow, what a novel thing. Yeah. Most of my patients don't read them not, either. Not what, not, not what somebody in social media is saying. Again, it's like the, it's like the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, in social media. Right. It's like it, right. you, need, you need to follow what your surgeon does. And, and then long term, you know, you just really you're going to live your life like you normally would. But. There's some things you do need. You do need to continue to see your surgeon. Um, you want to have long-term follow-up. You would probably want to do an ultrasound every five right. years to check the status right. of your implant, and 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 those things will serve you well. Yeah, and I think you bring up the good point about size, and the reason I didn't talk so much about it because that's really when you find a, a real board-certified plastic surgeon, they will have that conversation with you, and they're not going to do crazy stuff. I always talk about in one of my tenants, don't do crazy stuff. Don't come in, and we're going to talk about extreme plastic surgery in another episode. You know, putting in these huge implants that are disproportionate, that don't look good on you, and that's that's not a good thing. And I, 
I actually personally blame the surgeon as much or more than I think the patient yeah. because you shouldn't do that. And, you know, I don't want to partake in anything that, d that doesn't look good, and neither do you. So, so the whole shaping, sizing, if you find an expert, they'll guide you. They'll do the right thing for you because, you know, you want to be your best you. So I think in summary, this was an excellent overview, Bill. Thank you so much uh, for doing great. this. I think, I think everybody should think about this and listen to this and then go see a board certified plastic surgeon in your area that really cares about you, cares about your result. And that's really what we do on, on the Roy Knows podcast. We want you to be a better you. So, so please, you know, like and subscribe. Give me your comments. Tell me exactly what you liked, what you didn't like, and, and what are the things you'd like to hear about, what other, what other episodes you'd like to hear about. And I want to th personally thank uh, the Pisces Surgery Channel and Dr. Adams for this amazing educational episode. Thank you so much, Bill. Right. You bet. Live the dream.